Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. That's true. You're certain you had to open this door? Yeah, I'm certain. What's the point, Ventura? Only this. Conversations about collaboration, episode 53. Vanessa Bonds joins me today. She teaches at Cornell University, my alma mater, Go Big Red. Her new book is called You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. We talk about power, hybrid work, virtue signaling, destination weddings, pronouns, and the benefits of showing up to meetings even when you don't speak. Let's get it on. Vanessa, where does this pod find you? I am in Ithaca, New York, in my office in Ives Hall at Cornell. Cornell, baby. Go Big Red. <laughs> Sorry. Love talking to an alum. Yeah, I actually didn't graduate. I just bought a degree on the interwebs and said that I graduated there. No one's ever called me on it. <laughs> but congrats on the book. I, I want to dive right in because I'm fascinated by the subject and I was reading early on about solar panels and I never thought about how if your neighbor has one, you'd want one too. And that could be beneficial. But if someone then has a destination wedding, other people want them, that's horrible for the environment. So I guess it's a double-edged sword, right? When you think about the influence that you don't maybe necessarily have with others, but invariably you do. Yeah, it's interesting. So the the sort of solar panel destination wedding uh, research that you're noting is by Bob Frank, who's here at the business school at Cornell. And he talks about this idea of indirect influence and basically how, when we think of influence, we're often thinking of direct influence. We think of like, I'm impacting this one person's behavior, um, or I'm impacting something myself in the environment. So say I want to, you know, cut down on my carbon footprint, and my way of doing that is going to be to put a solar panel in, you know, on the roof of my house. And so I think about the direct influence that's going to have on the environment. And you know, if you really think about it too hard, you realize it's actually pretty small. Um, but in fact, by doing that, what happens is you put that in everyone around you's head to think about, well, maybe I'll do that too. You know, your neighbors walk by as you're installing that solar panel. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that people are paying attention to what we're doing. They're curious about what we're doing more than we realize. And so as we're sort of putting up that solar panel, you know, they're kind of wondering like what led them to that decision, you know, and then they start simulating that decision themselves. And before you know it, they're kind of halfway towards thinking about maybe putting a solar panel in their house, right? And so that's indirect influence. So, And the idea is that Maybe my one solar panel is going to make a huge difference, but if all of a sudden, you know, five other people in my neighborhood install one, that has a much more significant difference. And actually aerial footage shows that solar panels tend to cluster in this way as if this is actually what's happening. So we do impact, you know, the environment and all sorts of things, not only through our own actions, but indirectly through the ways in which people mimic our behavior. And they tend to do that more than we realize. It sounds a little bit in that case, like unintentional virtue signaling. You're not trying to shame someone into getting 
solar panels, you're doing it because it's your home. It's your right. You believe it's the right thing to do, which by the way it is, but um, other yeah. people pick up on that. And that's just one of the things that kind of, I thought about reading that section, both, both good and bad. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because virtue signaling gets a bad rap as if it's, you know, just this performative thing, but even if it is for one person, it does sort of convey the norms that are, you know, acceptable within a group. So even by saying like, you know, Black Lives Matter on Twitter or whatever it is, and even if it feels performative and you're just like, oh, you're just kind of virtue signaling, which someone very well may be, if enough people do that, you look around and you're like, okay, the norm seems to be that everyone's on board with this kind of message. And so it can actually have this positive impact, right? So it's not always such a negative thing, but as you said, it can be positive or negative, right? So even when we do things, you know, that we'd rather people didn't see or didn't pay attention to, they're looking at those things as well. And those things are impacting them more than we realize. So, you know, if we litter, for example, uh, the research also shows that our throwing like litter on the ground impacts the likelihood that other people will do the same, even if there's big signs that say don't litter, right? That people don't just sort of look at what the signs and the rules are, but they look at what other people are doing. And that's how they make decisions about what's okay or normative. And so even when we, you know, when we install a solar panel, great, they're paying attention to that and they may be more likely to do that. When we throw, you know, litter on the ground, they're paying attention to that. And then they may be more likely to do that. So it, it works in both directions. It's funny when you mentioned in litter i think about ron burgundy and anchorman just putting down the window and throwing something out and i think um we just i can't remember the last time i saw someone intentionally litter i'm, I'm sure i have but but i would imagine that was a lot more common 30 or 40 years ago yeah i agree and so actually the studies i'm thinking of that show that are from maybe like 20 30 years ago it's true there's been this sort of normative shift right where that has become unacceptable much more broadly um, but yeah, that's how these things happen. You know, these normative shifts shifts happen and all of a sudden we decide sort of collectively, all right, this is no longer appropriate. Smoking is similar. And so Bob Frank talks about that as well, about sort of how smoking was decreased, not just because, you know, of taxes that made it more expensive. And so that had this direct influence on people's behavior, but again, through indirect influence. And so once I stopped smoking, right, because maybe it was too expensive for me. Now my friends are looking at me and now they're thinking, oh, why did she stop smoking? And just like the solar panels, that can have a similar effect. So it can, these sort of tidal waves of changing normative behavior, whether it's littering or smoking or, you know, hopefully solar panels, uh, they do happen through this indirect influence. Mm -hmm. Another example, as you talk, I think about is the use of pronouns on websites or even zoom. I don't know if you know this, I think two weeks ago, it added the ability to enter your pronouns and you could always change your name in zoom, right? I'm the Pope. doesn't matter, but um, you put them up there, he, him, she, her, whatever. But then for individual meetings, you can hide them, but they're there by default if you choose to do that. So I agree. There's this optimism when I read the book and when I listen to you talk, but there's also, and I enjoy the book, also, a little bit of pessimism. I'm particularly thinking of the 1970s Donald study, which couldn't have planned it any better, I suppose, but about how we attribute things we like to people, even if they do questionable things. Well, we like them, so we make excuses, right? Which, you know, elephant in the room. And then I'm, I'm reading that thinking to myself, 
you know, we're all guilty of that. I'm no better than anybody else, right? If it's a rock band that I like and they do something, uh, I love this band, so they get a pass, right? But if it's a band I don't really like as much, I go, oh, this is just another example. It made me think of, I forget the name. I'm usually pretty good with quotes, but there's some Italian philosopher professor said something in effect of, we are not thinking machines who feel, we are feeling machines who occasionally think, which is kind of depressing in a way because it makes you think that there's no truth. You're just going to ascribe particular era of social media and confirmation bias, whatever attributes you want, irrespective of whether something is objectively evil. Thoughts? I'm just kind of babbling. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I do think that all that you say, uh, I would agree with, right? That in general, we think that people are thinking more deeply about the things that we say than they actually are, right? And judging us more harshly than they actually are. And that can, in some cases, be a negative, right? Especially if we're sort of uh, putting misinformation out there and people aren't really thinking about it that deeply, but just assuming because we said it and they like us that it must be true, right? Or, you know, situations where you'd like someone to be a little bit more critical of somebody's behavior, but they're actually more inclined to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Um, So one of the things I talk about in the book is that really at the end of the day, because of that, because people are more likely to give us the benefit of the doubt than we realize, and because they're more likely to believe the things we say than we may realize and not sort of pick them apart, but that actually gives us a lot of power, but it also gives us a lot of responsibility. And that at the end of the day, we really have to sort of be aware of that so that we do some of the work of making sure that the things we say are vetted and true, right? So as long as sort of we're willing to take the responsibility, I think it can be a happy story, but of course, there's going to be people who take advantage of that as well. Yeah. You mentioned a particular former president, I don't like saying his name, but also someone like um, comedians. I remember reading um, little little bets by this guy, Peter Sims. It was a short book, maybe 10 years ago, about how you might see Chris Rock in Manhattan at a 30-person comedy joint. You go, is that Chris Rock? Well, yeah, because he's, and other comedians do this. I think Seinfeld does this as well, um, putting a few jokes out there, not knowing if they're going to work. So it's better to bomb in front of 30 people than 3000. That's right. And so, you know, I talk about this in the context of sort of who has the power in a room, because we have this idea that the person at the front of the room, the person holding the microphone, the person like standing up on the podium, maybe with some PowerPoints is the person with all the power and influence in the room. But in fact, that person and anyone who has even given a presentation, you know, in a meeting knows this to be true. That person is looking at the audience, paying attention to that, how that audience is reacting to them. Do they like the things I'm saying? Do they not? And as they see the audience's reaction, we shape our message to sort of match that reaction because we want to be liked, right? We want people to like us. And in comedians' cases, for example, think we're funny. So Jerry Seinfeld does say in you know, that documentary comedian about sort of how he comes up with his bits. He says, you know, you people are in charge of deciding what's funny. Like it's not us. It's not the comedians who decide what's funny. It's you guys. And it's this interesting sort of reflection on who really has the power in a room, right? And that in fact, power is really shared in those situations. It's not just the person in, in front of the room. Yeah, that made me think about your example with Hillary Clinton talking to Goldman Sachs. I never thought about it that way before for people who haven't read your book yet. Um, explain that real quick. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, this is the sort of criticism when she was giving these big corporate speeches for lots of money. And there was a sense that, you know, getting paid lots of money in the end, you know, was a tit for tat thing. And that was the real problem is getting paid for it. But in fact, another issue is what happens is as we tune our message to the audiences that we're speaking to. So if I'm tuning my message to someone uh, and I think they might like my sort of my normal sort of way of thinking about a particular topic, I'll change it slightly. I'll make it a little more palatable to that group. And you can say that doesn't really matter. You know, you walk away and you were just pandering to your audience as politicians do. But the research shows that there's something called the saying is believing effect. So once we do that, once we tune our message to an audience and we've stated it and we see this whole audience of people sort of nodding and smiling and agreeing with us, right? we start to believe that a little bit more. And so that can start to change our own beliefs. And so the idea there, again, is that the audience has this power, not just to shape the messages we convey to them, but also to change our minds a little bit. And so there's kind of more to those uh, speaking gigs than meets the eye that could have been going on and could potentially shape someone's sort of policy ideas or the things that they're willing to, to talk about. Talk to me a little bit more about what you said earlier about how we might have not the same amount of power um, in a room, but in a hybrid sense. So I, I remember going back to my days as a consultant, when you'd have a conference call and someone wasn't there and would call in, right? That person was a voice emanating from a little black box, right? I mean, yeah, a person could have some level of influence, but come on. I think about that now in the context of you know, a, a hybrid meeting, but someone's calling in through Zoom. I know that's, I read a ton of articles about how companies are specifically trying to avoid that. Or I think Google's spending an outrageous sum of money to have these huge sort of hybrid rooms in which your screen would be as big as your head. That way you have the same conscious or subconscious influence on others. Yeah, absolutely. And it is to try to avoid these, these problems with you know hybrid meetings and hybrid work because at the end of the day, if you think about the dynamic, if you've got half your team that's in the office, right, and you're about to go into a big meeting with another half of the team that's going to call in from Zoom, and maybe you're going to have a debate about something and make a decision. You've got everybody who's there in the office who is chatting in the hallway, you know, chatting around the water cooler. They're kind of figuring out what each of them thinks in these informal ways, right? They're developing this relationship with one another. They're having all these conversations that don't sort of happen organically when you're not actually in the office. And so you can imagine that sort of group of people coming into a room to go ahead and have this meeting where a bunch of other people call in and they've already kind of figured out their position. They already kind of know what everybody thinks and they've had time to chew on it. And then you have people who call in and they just aren't in the same sort of power position of knowing already sort of where the people in that room stand. And so it automatically puts people who are calling in at a disadvantage. And there's ways to sort of counter it um, by making sure, for example, that everybody on Zoom actually takes the time to you know state their position and you go around. Because I think one problem is a lot of the times not everybody speaks. It's easy to get forgotten when you're calling in uh, virtually. Um, but it still puts those people at a disadvantage and winds up in the situation where the people who are in person wind up having more power and influence over these kinds of decisions. Yeah, you were talking about internal academic meetings and why do I need to show up? 
if I'm junior? And I'll be honest with you, I asked myself that question a ton of times uh, in the four years that I was teaching at Arizona State because invariably we had 50 people more or less agreeing, but using different words. And I'm sure you've seen that movie once or twice before. And I thought to myself, there's really nothing that I can do to sway the masses, right? They're going to vote in a certain way and there's only a downside. So I just found it interesting that on certain issues, you get 50 people to agree. Um, what are the odds that all those 50 people agreed or did they just think, yeah, let me get out of here. It's 4.30, I want to be traffic um, and I don't have any influence. So why bother making this too much, um, m- making this too much of an argument because I'm going to lose anyway and I'll probably tick off the department chair. Sure. And I mean, there may be cases in which all that is true. Um, But at the same time, so one of the things I talk about is, you know, if people do pay attention to you more than you realize, which is one of the things I argue in the book, that means that if you're sitting in a meeting and you show up to a meeting, people know that you're there. They notice that you've shown up. And as we talked about, people tend to tune their messages to the people around them, to their audience. So for example, if I have a group of people and you know it's primarily men and a woman shows up, right? And we're talking about benefits or something. Maybe the fact that a woman is there, I'm going to start thinking about maternity benefits and I they wouldn't have come up otherwise. But just that person's presence makes me think of something because that person is salient and I think about what they might be interested in. I think about might, you know, what they might want to talk about or care about. And so I put that on the table when I might otherwise not have. And now that's totally shaped the discussion and we've added something to the, the discussion. And that comes from someone who maybe doesn't even say anything, just their presence change, changes what's salient and changes the way a discussion uh, unfolds just because of what people think they might think about that discussion. And so it really does give you power, even if you don't say anything by just showing up. It makes me think of, I think it was 15 years ago when Ray Rice of the Baltimore Ravens, I don't know if you're a football fan, he, I think, smacked and kicked his fiance and they gave him a two-week suspension, right? Mm-hmm. Then the video hits and all of a sudden it took it up to 11 because there's nothing like video. I would bet my life that when the execs at the NFL made that decision, it was basically a bunch of white guys going, yeah, this makes sense. And mm-hmm. if there had been a woman in the room, even if that woman hadn't spoken up, it would have been, okay, wait, let's just think about this for a second because two weeks for basically assault uh, and then I think when the video hit, he got suspended for the rest of the season. And I don't think he ever played again in the NFL. So I think there's there's plenty of truth to what you're saying, even if someone doesn't speak up, um, just being there. Yeah. yeah. Great. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? So I am currently reading Fuzz by Mary Roach, which is my like fun. I love nonfiction, but this is like my fun nonfiction that doesn't really apply to my life, except that she has some interesting anecdotes that kind of apply, or at least I feel like they might apply to today. She talks about um, how the 1918 flu pandemic, actually, because people in India weren't able to bury their bodies in the way that they normally do, and more people were dying too quickly. Um, pumas. So it's all about like animal human behavior and interactions and, and animal uh, human crime, basically. Pumas developed this taste for human flesh in this one area of India. And it had this unintended consequence of having these pumas who would never stalk humans originally, like stalking humans. So 
it's kind of a weird anecdote to end on, but it keeps making me think, what are the strange unintended, you know, consequences of the current pandemic that we have no idea that 10 years from now, we're going to see like, you know, animals stalking humans who didn't before, or like who knows what else. Um, but it's just, it's a fascinating, fun book. <laughs> yeah. When I think about un- unintended consequences from the pandemic, two stats come to mind. And I don't know if they're true nationally, but a couple of people told me four months in that sexually transmitted disease had, had dropped because people weren't going out as much. That's good. But then domestic violence had skyrocketed mm-hmm. because people were always around each other and not defending it. But in that context, you can certainly understand why people would lose their tempers. I'm not saying you know, we should be hitting people, but yeah, I mean, who knows what, I mean, looking at e-commerce or online learning, telemedicine trends that were taking place before that the pandemic accelerated, but I'm sure five, 10 years from now, we'll find out other things that remote yeah. work as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be fascinating to look back in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. (laughs) Vanessa, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However... If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.